Welcome to the Real Life Theology Podcast. Today, Mike Williams is talking about how to support the next generation in ministry. In this episode, Mike reflects on the majority of young people leaving the church once they graduate. He talks about how the church should be encouraging young people to pursue Christ and the calling that they have on their lives. I know oftentimes many younger people are not going to Christian colleges and not going to ministry for a variety of reasons. And so Mike has some great insight on how we can encourage this more in young people to follow their God-given talents in leading into what God has for them. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome. Good to have you all here today. My name is Mike Williams, and I'm privileged to serve as the president, new president at Harding University in Arkansas, and uh, just blessed to be a part of uh, Renew.org. I must confess, I met Bobby Harrington, who's a distinguished uh, Harding graduate this summer, and my knowledge of Renew was really about this deep. But after that conversation, we walked away from that conversation, I thought, there's so much shared vision between what Renew is trying to accomplish and what I believe is a a vision uh, for a Christ-centered university in this culture uh, that I thought, how can we be a part? And so it's a, a huge blessing, and given the seismic changes in our culture, uh, it's time for the people of God, guided by the Holy Spirit, shaped by His teaching, to run straight into the fire. And I just applaud everything that, uh, that we are experiencing as a part of this conference, and just honored to be a part of it. Um, I have to confess also that being a part of this uh, conversation has a deeply personal attachment as well. My mom grew up in the independent Christian church. My parents were married in the independent Christian church. Um, My mom was part of a family that was really first-generation Christians. Uh, And my dad grew up in the non-instrumental side of our family and had generational relationships. And so when they got ready to choose a church, they kind of went that side just because of relationships. And uh, my dad reflected a lot about those early years of being a married couple and how many times he winced when, when my mom was introduced. She would be introduced as, this is Sally. It's David's wife. He converted her. It still hurts today. My dad was always quick to point out that uh, she's the most godly woman on the planet who had a command of Scripture that no minister at our church ever had, even the Harding graduate who served (laughs) half of my childhood upbringing. And if there was a conversion in the Williams family, it wasn't her, it was him. Uh, And so I don't know what they can witness from where they're at today. But if they have any window to think about, uh, I'm so glad that those sectarian views are in our rear view mirror, and I hope they never come back. Um, one of my favorite experiences is Senior Sunday. We all have it. You know, it's a Senior Sunday where we bring the high school seniors up to the front. We give them a Bible and a blessing for the church. And the older I get, the more emotional I get. I mean, I'm a blubbering mess by the end of Senior Sunday. I don't even have to even know them. It's just that symbolic moment where we recognize this this passage of life and what's really occurring. And 
It's a, it's a meaningful moment. A lot of symbolism in there. But I must confess, over the last few years, Senior Sunday, Sunday comes with more mixed emotions. Because yes, it is still that symbolic moment of transition to adulthood. But when you actually reflect that symbolically, that's probably the last Sunday that they'll be at church. It's painful. It's painful to think about that uh, seven out of ten are walking away from every religious tribe in America. And that's troubling all of us. And I must confess a little bit, but my bias is that when you send them off to the University of Babylon, don't be surprised when they come back as Babylonians. It's happening. It's hard to walk away from it. So if it's 70%, we're not talking about the fringe. We're about to talk about the kids who are deeply engaged, who went on mission, they went on trek, they're deeply involved in everything we had them to be engaged in. And they're walking away. And so what is that doing? It's also intriguing to me as we watch them walk out the door that they're not walking with a picket sign. They're not throwing any rocks at us. But they're quietly just walking away. And church leaders in every tribe are trying to figure out, what do we do? And we're scrambling. We're scrambling on every side. And uh, you know what the baby boomer response is? The baby boomer response is the same response that we've given to everything. Our response and our solution to any problem is 60 minutes on Sunday. How's that working? Now, I'm not against a really robust worship experience that's contemporary and relevant and emotional. But if we think 60 minutes on Sunday is going to stop the tide, it's not even a speed bump. I think we've got to reflect back and see what's happening. So ministers in our tribe and every tribe and theologians are, you know, writing papers or sermons or places like this that come together and say, can we get a grip on what's happening? And we talk amongst ourselves and get in our echo chamber and talk about the value of the church. I was reading a publication recently, and I I read through all the different articles in the publication, and I believed in every single piece of information that was disclosed. But it focused on the assembly, it focused on doctrine, and it focused on Christian fellowship, and three things I think are central. But there's one thing that's absent. One thing that I believe is a significant part of the church that is completely marginalized, um, and really outside, because most of the conversations is an insular analysis. But there's no discussion of the church's impact on the world. We don't really talk about it. It's interesting to me, it's my 38th year working at a Christ-centered university, and I've had a recurring conversation for a long time with a lot of different students And one of the uh, top goals of a student who chooses to attend a Christ-centered institution, not just at the one I've worked at, but also some of my colleagues, is our students want to start a nonprofit. They're compelled by the brokenness of humanity. 
and they actually want to do something about it. But why would a Christian want to start a nonprofit? Now, I'm not anti-nonprofit. In fact, I just moved back to Searcy from Montgomery, Alabama, where I was actually the campaign chair for the United Way. We raised $4 million for good work. I was thrilled by all of it. But the question still resounds in my mind, why does a Christian want to start a nonprofit? I believe that they no longer, this generation no longer believes that God's vehicle for the redemption of all things still works. And they're tired of waiting on us. So they'd much rather start a nonprofit and get, get going. And I think these kinds of things grab me by the face mask and says, what is the church really supposed to do? Isn't the church really called to equip the saints to do exactly what these young people want to do? If the church is going to reflect the teachings of Jesus Christ, yes, there is an internal focus of building community and appreciation for Scripture and letting God's Spirit work in our lives to instruct us in a path. But it's also got to be an external focus to carry out the the ministry of Jesus Christ. Obviously, Jesus in His time, the New Testament chronicles His times with the Twelve, preparing them for a time when He would be gone. But there is a lot of the New Testament that chronicles His work outside of the Twelve. Has the church just become a building? Has the church just become an event? Just that 60 minutes? Or we feel better about it when it's 90? Whatever. Are we no longer a body, no longer a movement? Are we just a place? A, a, A verse that we have quoted most of my life, John 13, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And our default interpretation of that verse is that that's, that's just about us. We just love one another, and uh, that's going to be our trumpet to the world. And uh, as they drive by, Trader's Point today, say, oh, yeah. those people, they love one another. And that's supposed to capture anybody's attention? Do you think anybody is captured by the fact that I love my wife, that I love my sons, that I love my daughter-in-law, that I love my church family? Doesn't gangs do that? Aren't football teams accused of doing that? There's nothing compelling about us loving one another to an outside world. We made that up. Because in the context of Jesus' teaching about love, what captured the the attention of first century was not that he loved the twelve, but that they loved him. It was the love extended to a Samaritan woman. It was that invitation to a tax collector. It was the very touch of a leper. That is what captured the attention. So John 13 is not talking about small groups, church softball, potlucks, or whatever. It's talking about a reckless, unconstrained, tidal wave of love, mercy, and compassion. I think it's intriguing to think about this first century church and uh, its impact. You know, our New Testament really kind of gives us this little window into five decades of the early infant movement 
And historians sometimes help us better understand first century culture of Israel and Roman culture to help us better understand what was really happening. And I love the quote by Dr. James Kennedy. He says, uh, and I don't love the quote, I just, it's instructive. It's, life was expendable prior to Christianity's influence. In those days, abortion was rampant. Abandonment was commonplace. It was common for infirmed babies or unwanted little ones to be taken out to the forest and the mountainside to be consumed by wild animals or to starve. And they often abandoned female babies because women were considered inferior. It was called the practice of exposure. And it was legal. There's gladiator contests. There's sexual promiscuity. There's homosexuality. There's marginalization of women. First century Israel was a barbaric place. And yet this small little band of Christians had a different, completely different worldview. They had a drastically different regard for human life. They cared about the sick, the disabled, and the elderly, and the marginalized. And it was Christians prompted by their faith who launched the first hospitals and orphanages. And the influence of the church elevated the value of women. They were propelled for benevolence and charity. They had this good Samaritan ethos. And their influence even impacted the court system. In essence, the church transformed the Roman Empire. And the growth of Christian thought and practice was the catalyst for one of the most important reforms of mor- in the moral history of mankind. I think it's also interesting to think about some of the demographics to appreciate the church. Um, it's believed that the world's population of the first century was about 200 million. Now, to put that in perspective, that we have, last I saw, we had about 328 million in America. And so 200 is a small in comparison to the world's population today, but 200 million is still a lot, of, a lot of folks. And what do we know from the Bible about this early movement, at least the numbers? Well, we don't know much. We know that there was 12 that were called. There were 70 that were sent out in Luke chapter 10, and about 3,000 that committed their life to Jesus on the day of Pentecost. And that's it. That's the only thing we know from Scripture about this early movement as far as the numbers. But historians believe that there was only about 100 churches in A.D. 100. And Dr. Rodney Stark, a distinguished scholar from Baylor, would suggest from his research that he believes there are about 40,000 Christians in A.D. 150, about 220,000 in A.D. 200, and by A.D. 250, 1.2 million. By the 3rd century, the Roman Emperor Constantine converts to Christianity. And regardless of what you think about Constantine, he ended the practice of exposure. Christianity has impacted the world in some profound ways, and this barbaric pagan culture was impacted by a band of revolutionaries. And from Constantine on, we see Christians making powerful impacts and contributions to the world. There's the abolition of slavery, William Wilberforce, the British evangelical. Two-thirds of the American um, um, abolition society were Christian ministers. A lot of them from our tribe as a part of that. They impacted my uh, profession of education. Every, every single European university started under Christian principles. The first 123 colleges in America started as Christian colleges. The only one that wasn't was my alma mater, the University of Pennsylvania, who was started by Benjamin Franklin 
not exactly a secular humanist. The fingerprints of Christianity in the world externally are all over the place. Let's think about um, the teachings of Jesus and how that may impact us in thinking about uh, a roadmap for this emerging generation. Do you remember how Jesus was portrayed when we were growing up? I guess growing up in my little church in Ohio, uh, Jesus was portrayed as superhuman and doing miracles every day. And then you get a little bit older and you realize the miracles are really a pretty insignificant part of, uh, of his life and teaching. And most of them were performed in pretty obscure places. And when Jesus performed a miracle, he said, don't tell him. Don't tell a word. And so what was the purpose of the miracles? Let's think about a couple of this. Talk about the first one, you know, that first uh, miracle where Jesus turns the water into grape juice. And uh, okay, you are awake. I was just a shameless play to see if anybody is listening. You know, just a little wake up call, a little halftime call. All right. So the wedding feast, running out of wine. What's the purpose? Is Jesus that opportunist that says, wow, here's a really a, a nice moment to announce my ministry. What an awkward moment, a chance to really go on stage and say, I am the Messiah. Is that what was happening? You know, I, I heard all about the, read about the Messianic prophecy about restoring Israel and, and uh, coming back to redeem God's people. There is no mention of social faux pas. And yet, Jesus comes back. He even told his mom, no, this is not my time. What was the purpose? Is it flexing divine muscle or is it compassion and love? It's definitely about love. John chapter 9, the whole chapter is dealing with the blind man. Was this just God flexing divine power or is it really giving us a window to how he feels about the sick and disabled. What about leprosy? A very interesting kind of thing. Paul Brand, a leprosy specialist, he said leprosy does not hurt. There's no pain. There's no discomfort. But there's tremendous suffering. Mother Teresa, you know, in her work in uh, Calcutta, India, says it's the disease of being unwanted. And yet Matthew, Mark, and Luke all use this explosive sentence when they describe the healing of the leper. Jesus reached out his hand and touched him. The God who spoke the universe into to, uh, um, existence chooses touch as the healing. He even violates Levitical law that requires the, the lepers to live outside the city six feet of uh, distance. It's the first <laughs> example of social distancing in the Bible. You know, it's like, and yet he violates all that with touch. And so is mir- the miracle's really designed just to say, guess who I am? It's not. And obviously the most compelling uh, miracle of the raising of Lazarus, we see this great emotion and his tears. There's something much more significant. In reality, miracles really have no lasting significance except the miracle of the resurrection All the other miracles have no lasting significance. 
The people who are fed, four hours later, their stomachs growled again. Those people who were sick just got another disease later. Even poor Lazarus. My son, you know, he did study abroad when he was at Harding, and he called my wife and I at like 4.30 in the morning. We woke up. We were just like, what's wrong? And he said, I'm at Lazarus' second tomb. <laughs> you know, I, 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 it took, I was 4.30, so, I, you know, it's taken me a minute to get there, and I was like, oh, yeah. You know, most of us, we dread death. Poor old Lazarus. You got to do it twice, you know. Is there any lasting significance to the miracles? No. Not except that they're not promises that God's going to relieve us of all of our pain and disease and death, but they are wonderful messages of mercy, love, and compassion. John uh, chapter 14. I actually left my phone. Oh, no, I, I got it on the screen. Believe me when I say I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe in the evidence of the works themselves. So John does acknowledge that the miracles do give evidence that Jesus is of divine power. And here's where it gets interesting. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I've been doing and will do even greater things than these. That's because John understood that miracles, there's a ceiling on the impact of a miracles. But the impact of love, mercy, and compassion far exceeds the impact of a miracle. That's what's greater than these. The history of the Christian church and churches of Christ, we trace our roots back to the restoration movement. And the leaders of that movement were calling us, the community of faith, to go back to Scripture as our only guide. I remember uh, uh, a number of years ago, I met Buck Smith, who served as an interim president at Bethany. And I went to meet him in his office. And while we were meeting, he actually had to take a call. And so there I was at Bethany College in the president's office, Alexander Campbell's office, big oil painting of, of the man right there. And I thought, how much of our lives, how much of my life had been shaped by sermons written in that office, publications that were authored in that office, how much of it was shaped in my life. It was, you know, it was really a moment, a moment. But today I must tell you that when restoration movement is that term is used, it's code language. It's code language for first century worship practices, governance, doctrine. I believe it's time for a new restoration movement. One that includes a commitment to biblical teaching. But we need a new movement that needs to be a revolution. A revolution to restore first century love and mercy. Let's start a revolution of compassion. Let's revive the apostolic teaching on generosity. Let's reawaken our commitment to run towards broken humanity. I think if the church is going to be relevant. You know, all the exit uh, interviews that we're, the church researchers are doing with this generation, they're walking away saying, you're irrelevant. You're not really connected to the world that God has called us to serve. I believe if we want to be re relevant, we have to recognize our calling to make a difference in the world. The church was launched in the midst of a barbaric Roman pagan culture and a revolution was started by 12 students 
students. Most biblical scholars feel like the, the disciples were 18 to 21 when they were called. So I'm reminded when I read Scripture and see names like Peter, James, and John, I don't think about guys like Jimmy Cohn, who's on our board. <laughs> Those guys don't look like me and you. They look like the Harding students. It frames a little bit. It makes you think differently about the Gospels when you think in the, even the letters, when you think about these disciples being 18 to 21. They had no formal training. They had no political capital, but yet they were empowered by the Holy Spirit. By Jesus' teachings and example, they changed the world. Could this exodus from the church be actually calling us to a reawakening of what it might look like to be a Christ follower? Robert Lewis, who's the retired uh, lead pastor of the Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, he chronicles four decades of ministry in his book, The Church of Irresistible Influence. And he reflects on the people that came to the Lord during his ministry there at Fellowship Bible. And he thought about who came, who stayed, and who left. And one common theme of those who stayed were those who were engaged in meaningful service to other people. And his statement flies in the face of many church researchers that says it's really about just connecting people relationally. And he would suggest, if they don't have relevant ministry, they're walking. Especially this younger generation. They've got a sense of agency. They actually want to put their hands on the wheel. And we're saying, you're going to be great when you're 50. And we wonder why they walk. We wonder why they walk. Now, Robert would also be quick to point out is that as he thought about 40 years of ministry and who stayed, is that when they locked arms in meaningful service to broken humanity, guess what? They became great friends. They became brothers in the ministry. And so relationships are a part of that. But the goal is not just to build friendships. The, the goal is not to build friendships, is it? The goal is to engage in the reconciliation of God and to run towards the brokenness, not just invite them to our place. Erwin McManus, in his book, Unstoppable Force, said the church's attitude toward the, toward the world could be categorized in three different responses. He said, first, there's a really an antagonistic response that's legalistic, that's protectionism, that's isolated. They're, they're hacked, they're disgusted, they're angry with the world. We can understand that response, can't we? The world's going to hell in a handbasket. When my, my, after my mom died, my dad actually came to Arkansas, and uh, uh, when I didn't have something at lunch, I would swing by his house just to check on him. And uh, I'd swing by his house, and by noon... My dad had had six hours of news. <laughs> and the man was on the edge. It was like, Dad, we're turning off the TV. No more news. Don't do it. And so we understand this antagonistic as we see things in culture collapsing around us, and that builds anger. Yeah, that's one response. One response is apathetic. care less. It's a hopelessness to say, 
they're going in a different direction. Um, there's a phrase that we say a lot that I'm increasingly more uncomfortable with. Post-Christian. I'm eradicating that from my vocabulary. I think it's borderline heretical to say it. Do we think the Holy Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, sitting around bump, fist bumping each other saying, it was good while it lasted? <laughs> really? Now, I understand there is collapsing in culture going all around us. But I believe as a recovering accountant that words matter. It's part of my 12-step process <laughs> to recognize that words matter. I'm, I'm, I'm on a journey. Post-Christian. What are we saying post-Christian? The kingdom of, of God is alive and well. And the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that raised Jesus Christ and dead, it lives in every person in this room. It's not a post-Christian world. I'm afraid that our language is suggesting a something that breeds antagonism, that breeds apathy, that breeds fear, that says we're not going to step into the fire. I say we drop it. We're not the first culture. This first century culture, if we think 2023 in America is bad, when you lay that side by side with first century culture in Israel impacted by the Romans, <laughs> we live in a playground. I mean, God has equipped us with everything we need to impact this world for Jesus Christ. And I believe God is calling us to run towards brokenness, to have a first responder mentality when everybody else is running away from the fire. We ought to be the people of God who runs towards it. In reality, could it be that this exodus is actually for us to grab us by the face mask and say, wake up. This is what it means to be a Christ follower. And you run. You run with courage into the fire that you will be protected. That's what I believe this emerging generation is actually asking for. Now, do they need our help? Oh, yes. I mean, there are so many negative voices in their ears. It's unbelievable. And as, as a college president who works at an institution, who people are self-selecting to come to a Christ-centered institution, there's a lot of negative voices in their ears. A lot. Their biblical literacy is that deep. I don't care where they came from church. It's that deep. And you get all the negative voices in there, there. We have got to walk beside them. But they're actually calling us outside the building. And if we continue to anchor ourselves into this 60-minute solution on Sunday, it's not going to end well. It is not going to end well. And rather than throw rocks at uh, this emerging generation, I think we need to engage in where they want to go. We just need to go with them. You know, there's a great message at the end of where Joshua is uh, ready to go into the, the battle of Jericho. Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. I think it's time for us 
to realize that God is expecting. We should expect God to do something amazing in this culture. And I believe this generation may be the generation we've actually been praying for. We've been praying for a revival in America for 50 years. And could this actually be a Judges 10 moment where the, uh, the generation was redeemed, but it was redeemed by a future generation? Could it be that God has actually put right in front of us the generation who actually wants to run into the fire? Maybe it's time. Maybe it's time for a new restoration movement. Is absolutely committed to biblical teaching? Is absolutely committed to the ministry of Jesus Christ in the streets? If you haven't checked out the 2024 Renew National Gathering yet, we should invite you to go on to renew.org, grab your tickets today. Maybe you've been before, maybe you haven't, but we have a lot of great breakout track sessions just like you heard today that you'd be able to go see in person here take notes, be a part of the conversation in the room. So if this is something that enriches your ministry, we just greatly encourage you to check it out, grab our tickets today.